So what we, what we talked about last week is we kind of gave a main theme, and this main theme is really going to spiderweb throughout this entire series. It's going to interject throughout the entire series. And the main theme is this. You don't need to escape your pain. You don't need to escape your pain. You need to find God in the midst of the pain so you will discover why he allowed you to be in it in the first place. And, and it's this not popular idea because if we're honest with ourselves, pain is something that we all want to run from, right? It's something that we all want to avoid. And if we're not careful, we'll go to great lengths to try to numb our pain, to try to get rid of our pain, to try to suppress our pain because we don't want to feel it. And here's what we're talking through in this series that ultimately what we're saying is what would it look like if you sat in your pain for a moment? If you would actually Feel your pain, because here's the thing. Once you start feeling it, you start understanding where it's coming from. And once you start feeling it, you start understanding the reason that God's allowing it. But if you continually suppress it, if you continually numb it, every time your pain comes up and you're trying to suppress it and push it down, here's what happens. You never deal with the issue. So here's what I want to do this morning. I'm going to talk about a topic that I believe personally, I've done a ton of reading on this in the past almost six, seven months, and I think that I'm correct in this. And and maybe correct me if you feel like I'm wrong at the end of the day, but I think I can make a good argument that depression, anxiety, fear, and worry all comes from one thing, shame. And so here's what I want to tell you this morning. If you could allow God to deal with your pain, you wouldn't have a depression. If you could allow God to deal with your shame, you wouldn't have a depression problem. If you could allow God to deal with your shame, you wouldn't have an anxiety problem. If you could allow God to deal with your worry, ultimately God would begin to flesh some things out for you. So I want to talk today about one of the most powerful tools that the enemy uses in his toolbox. It's like the nuclear weapon. It's his atom bomb and it's shame. Um, And shame is not a new idea. It's not some new thing that he's been using. Um, Brene Brown actually puts it this way. She said, shame corrodes the very part of us that believes that we are capable of change. How many of you have ever just gotten to a place where you've dealt with an issue for so long, you finally surrender to the issue? You finally surrender to the fact that I'm just not capable of changing. I can't expose myself. I can't talk about this because once I do, right, I'm going to be so ashamed and be so low and people are going to think differently of me. So I'm stuck in this loop. I'm stuck in this cycle. I can't tell people about it. I can't open up about it. So what does the enemy do? He continually heaps shame upon us. And so we dig lower and lower and lower into our issues. Shame has actually plagued us ever since Adam and Eve bit into the fruit. Shame was there in the very, very beginning. It was one of the first tactics that the enemy used to cause us to hide and run from God. So let me show it to you in Genesis 3. This is verse 7 through 11. I think I actually highlighted, so pay attention to the, the pink words here. Immediately, the two of them did see what was really going on. So let me pause there. This is the moment that Adam and Eve bite into the forbidden root fruit. God, if you don't know this, God put a tree in the garden. He said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but you cannot eat from this one. Long story short, they eat from the fruit. And as soon as they bite this fruit, it says immediately they understand what's going on. Immediately they understand, oh my gosh, we just made an epic mistake. It says, so once they realize that they made the mistake, they sewed fig leaves together as makeshift claws for themselves. Have you ever touched a fig leaf? (laughs) It's not the ideal material for a clothes, especially on your sensitive parts, right? So they finally go to this place and they're like, all right, we're naked. Let's cover up with some fig leaves. So they sewed fig leaves together 
as makeshift clothes. When they heard the sound of God, I want you to know this, God's strolling in the garden. So God's just on a walk. He's enjoying his day. He's enjoying his creation. And the man and his wife, when they heard the Lord, they hid in the trees of the garden. They hid from God. And God called the man, where are you? He said, I heard you in the garden. This is Adam speaking. I heard you in the garden, and I was what? Afraid, because I was naked, and I hid. And God said, now this is instrumental. This is huge. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? So here's what happens. Shame has the ability to make you see yourself in a way that God does not see you. So here's what I want you to understand. Adam, like God never mentioned any, in any part of the text, he never mentioned like, hey, you guys are running around butt naked and you put some clothes on. He never makes light of their nakedness. He actually never addresses it until this moment. Shame, in their hiding, all of a sudden they realize they're naked, they feel like they have to cover up, and God leans in and he says, wait, hold on, time out. How did you even know you were naked? How did you even know that you were naked? Meaning God never made a scene about their nakedness before. And he's saying, why would I start now? Why would I start now? So here's what happens with shame. Sin already causes a rift between us and God. But shame will tell you that that rift is unrepairable, so you need to go hide. So sin, it creates this chasm. And here's the beautiful thing about sin is you can repent of your sin and you can move forward. See, that's what we don't understand so many times. Listen, we complicate it over and over and over again. Listen, when you fall short, here's the beauty of the gospel. God, forgive me, help me not to do that again, and you keep moving forward. But here's what shame does. I blew it. I'm unworthy. God sees me as less than, so what do we do? We run, we hide, we go and we stay in our house, and we stay in our rooms, and we kind of close off, and we start shutting off the world, and then we convince ourselves by saying, well, I'll come back out into reality once I'm better. How's that working? <laughs> we, we don't get better. So shame, here's what I want you to understand because it's so instrumental. Shame attacks your worthiness. It attacks your value. It attacks who you are as a person. It attacks God's creation. So there's a difference between guilt and shame. Let me contrast them for you real quick. Guilt, I did something bad and I need to make it right. Here's what shame says, I am bad. I am fundamentally bad. I am flawed. Guilt, that was a flawed decision. I shouldn't have made it. Shame, I am flawed. Guilt, that was a bad thought. I should repent. Now here's what shame does. Watch this. I'm a bad person for having that bad thought. You see how the enemy flips these things upside down? He uses our humanity against us. He knows we're broken. He knows we're flawed. He knows that we are susceptible to temptation. So what does he do? He creeps in and says, no, you're not, you didn't just make a bad decision. You're a bad person and you can't fix it. How many of you ever fallen into that trap? You fall into this idea of this is just the way that I'm going to be. So here's what I want you to understand this morning. And I, I pray that you get this. And I've been praying for you all week that this would seep down into your souls, that the Holy Spirit convicts so that intimacy with the Father can be restored. But shame will question your worthiness. So here's what I want you to understand this morning. If you feel anything this morning, don't distort it as a feeling of shame, but see it as a feeling of conviction that the only reason that you feel that feeling is because God is saying, listen, I have a better way. Come to me. Let's make this right. 
we can't mix up conviction and condemnation. Condemnation says, man, I'm terrible. I'm never going to make it right. Conviction says, man, I made a bad decision and I need to make that right. And once I make that right, I can keep moving forward. See, I think we misunderstand it. We have this idea that God has called us to this life of perfection. This life of, well, I'm a Christian and I just got to always be good. Like you, it, it, it affects you in the little things of life that you don't even realize. So let me give you a scenario. Like you parked your car at six o'clock in the afternoon in your driveway and you, you were blaring like Post Malone or something. I, most of you older people are like, what is that? Just don't look it up, okay? Um, you're blaring like some secular music and you're, you're enjoying it, you're loving it and you leave it on that station. You turn your car off, and the next morning rolls around, and you're picking up a friend, and they're a Christian, and you get in the car, and that music is still going. You're like, oh my God, I don't, I mean, I don't listen to that. I don't know what happened. <laughs> what is that? Shame. It's shame. And shame will cause you to get to a place where you can't even enjoy the simple things of life anymore. Because rather than feeling convicted for things, you walk around feeling condemned. I did not make a bad decision. I am a bad person. And there's nothing that I can do to change it. I want you to understand this. Hear me. Friends, God does not make mistakes and he didn't start with you. He does not make mistakes and he didn't start with you. See, the scriptures actually teach us that when God created us, can I remind you of something? He created us in his image. In his likeness. So when God looks at us, it's a reflection of who he is. And God didn't make a mistake. God actually said when he made us, he said, this is what? This is good. This is good. So if you feel like you're a mistake or you have this unescaping feeling of not enough, let me point you to a story in the scriptures that I pray will release you and help you. This is Luke chapter 8, verse 43. It's a very popular story in the scriptures, but I think if you can read it correctly, put on some new eyes, some new lenses when you, le- when you read this story. I want to encourage you as we read this story to put yourself in this situation. I- I'll tell you this. You know what will change your life in reading the scriptures? Open your imagination. Place yourself in the story. Like, read it with your name in the story. The same grace and mercy that God offers to so many people, I want you to understand that he extends to you. Like, I don't know about you. I've said this before, but like when I go see action movies, like, it's not whoever is starring. That's me, (laughs) right? My wife hates going seeing movies with me because I get out of the movie theater. I'm driving my car like a maniac, right? It's like, babe, you you can't drive like that. Oh, really? Watch me, Right? (laughs) Babe, this is a Honda minivan. We have eight kids in the back seat. And there's Cheetos everywhere. You cannot drive this thing like this. So when we read this text, place yourself in the story. Put yourself in this position. So in the crowd that day, there was a woman who for 12 years had been afflicted with hemorrhaging. She had bleeding and she could not get it under control. She had spent, watch this, every penny she had on doctors, but no one had been able to help her. I mean, I read this story in so much of a different light this week with the lens of people that deal with shame. I want you to notice something. For 12 years, she did not feel worthy enough to ask God to heal her. 
For 12 years, she said, I'm fundamentally flawed. Why would, why would Jesus want to take care of my little old issue? You ever felt like that? Like God has so many other issues going on in the world. Why would he be concerned with me? So for 12 years, this woman is dealing with this issue. She's spending her life saving. She's spending everything that she owns, going to every doctor she possibly could. Shame has convinced her that she's not worthy of a healing. And we keep reading. Now watch this. Still full of shame. Watch the wordage here. She slipped in from behind. So what's still going on? Okay, I'm finally working up enough courage to just be around Jesus, but I can't put myself in front of him. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to slip in, hope nobody notices me. She slipped in from behind and touched the edge of Jesus' robe, and at that very moment, her bleeding stopped. So I want you to notice something in this text, and it's very important. Her shame did not determine the healing that Jesus gave her. Her shame did not determine the power that left the Lord. So listen to me. Just because you feel shame for something, it does not limit you from God being able to lean in to your life. See, shame will often tell us that we don't deserve anything from Jesus. And here's what happens. We begin to believe this fundamental lie that God will only heal us if we truly earned it, right? God will only be there for us if we're good enough. You ever felt like that? Like, God, I've just asked you for so much and you've been so good. Like, I can't ask you for any more. Or God will only be good to us when we perform well, when we do well. So I want to ask you a question this morning. If you continue to live by this logic, when will you ever be good enough? What's your standard? You'll never be good enough. And here's what the standard becomes, everybody else. So here's what happens. Now we start playing this game of comparison. Well, their problem is larger than mine. God, take care of them first. And you just keep shoving yourself off to the side, right? And so now you start to believe this fundamental lie that I'm not worthy enough. But can I remind you that you were created in the image of God and that God doesn't make a mistake, and whatever your issues are, they're big deals to him. Whatever they are. Even in the eyes of the world, it may seem small, but it's a big issue to him. See, truth be told, if we continue to live by this logic of when will I ever be good enough, we miss, listen, you miss the essence of the gospel. You miss the meat and the bones of the gospel that God leaned in when you weren't enough. And he validates you. See, Jesus is good even when we don't feel like it. So the story continues. Jesus said, who touched me? Now, think of that question for somebody who is already mortified. Think of that question for a moment. Put yourself in that situation. You're already full of shame. You're crawling on your hands and knees. You slip in behind, hoping nobody will notice you. These people are usually sitting in the back row of church right now. Hi, how you doing? I'm just kidding. Not really. (laughs) But these people, what? So this lady slips in. She's already full of shame. And then Jesus has the audacity to go, where are you? Stand up. Who touched me? Oh, my God. That's that's like some of you, if I was like, come up here, preach a sermon. You'd be like, oh, my God, right? This is what just happened to her. Jesus shouts out, 
Who touched me? Now watch what happens. Nobody stepped forward. <laughs> I ain't owning that, <laughs> right? And then Peter, who's kind of thinking a little bit, he goes, Lord, Master, we've got crowds of people on our hands. Dozens have touched you. But Jesus insisted. So now, now watch this. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. We're going to find them. Nobody move. <laughs> Everybody stay right here. Who touched me? Someone touched me. I felt power discharged from me. Verse 47, when the woman realized that she couldn't remain hidden any longer. This is huge. She knelt trembling before him in front of all the people. She blurted out her story. So what happens? It is this overwhelming flood of emotions. Lord, I was bleeding for 12 years. I spent my life savings. I didn't know what else to do. I had no other avenue. I had no other place to go. And I just thought that if I could slip in and touch you, you could heal me. Now watch Jesus' response because this is huge if you deal with shame. Notice how he never mentions anything about her story. All he says, daughter, you took a risk trusting me. And now you're healed and whole. Live well, live blessed. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That doesn't seem like the appropriate response, does it? I mean, the appropriate response, if we were to play into the shame, it would have seemed like, you've been dealing with this for 12 years and you're finally coming to me now? What's wrong with you? You should have came to me the first few months that you were dealing with this. I would have healed you. You should have prayed more. You should have done more. Notice how Jesus doesn't even play into it. She was terrified. Her shame had convinced her that Jesus surely had more important things to, than to stop her bleeding. Shame had convinced her that there was other people with greater issues. There's no way that Jesus should worry about me, right? I mean, you've got guys with blind eyes, heal them. You've got guys with withered hands. You've got guys that have, are dead. You're bringing them back to life. Why don't you just keep doing that stuff? But Jesus' response is the antidote to our shame. Watch what he says again. Daughter, you took a risk trusting me. And now you're healed and whole. Live well, live blessed. As I said earlier, notice Jesus never mentions that she's been afflicted for 12 years. Notice that Jesus never mentions how she slipped in from behind. He never brought up anything that would cause her to relive her shame. He just simply says, live well, live healed, live blessed. What is that? That's empathy. That's empathy. Brene Brown, who is a psychologist and researcher, she puts it this way. Shame needs three things to survive. Three things to keep surviving in your life. If you want to stay stuck on shame, these are the three things that you just need to keep doing. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you want to stay full of shame, keep it a secret, remain silent, and allow people to keep coming on you and judging you better far off worse you judge yourself but the antidote to shame she says is empathy but i would argue that the only way to experience true empathy is by embracing true vulnerability so what does this woman do she's full of shame but she finally reaches a place in her life where she goes you know what this is enough 12 years 
I've got to slip in from behind because I don't know how to handle this yet. I don't know how to respond to this yet. I don't know how to deal with this whole vulnerable thing. I don't know how to be weak. I don't know how to be transparent. So I'm just going to do what I know how to do. I'm going to slip in from the back. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to just share my story. She slips in. She opens up a piece of her life knowing she had to know that there was the potential of Jesus calling her out, right? See, the reason that most of us don't ever experience empathy from other people is because other people don't really know where you're at. You ever get frustrated with somebody like, man, if they just knew the way that they talk to me, if, they just knew, if my husband just knew how he treats me, if my wife just, listen, sometimes they don't even know where you're at because you're so prideful, you're holding on to all your stuff. They don't know what you're feeling on the inside. And they can't be empathetic towards you because you haven't said anything. The only way to experience true empathy is by embracing true vulnerability. See, King David actually models this. He models what true vulnerability looks like actually in Psalms 51. Because in Psalms 51, you know the story, right? This was... Psalms 51 is written right after David is caught. It's when the prophet Nathan finally comes to him and he says, hey, listen, I know about your affair and I know that you murdered somebody. And it's all of a sudden, it's like that, that moment of, oh my God, and Nathan's saying, what are you gonna do about it? And David finally comes to this place in Psalms 51 where he's so broken. He realizes not only not even just how much he's ruined some things, but he realizes how much he's broken the heart of Jesus. And he writes this psalm, this vulnerable text, that he doesn't leave anything out. And I want to read the whole thing to you. This is Psalms 51. And this is David after the affair, after he murders somebody, and then he does all this stuff to cover it up. And Nathan comes to him and says, murdered somebody, you had an affair, what are you going to do? Psalms 51, verse 1. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stains of my sin, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. For I recognize, listen, this is huge in vulnerability, for I recognize my rebellion. If you're going to be vulnerable, you can't have any attempt to clean up your vulnerability. Here's what I mean by that own your story. Because if you don't, shame will continue to live. Shame will continue to thrive. You have to say, you know what? I did it. I recognize my wrong. I recognize my sin. And this is what he says. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. So when you get vulnerable, here's what you do. You sit down with somebody and you say, listen, this is what I did. And it's my fault. But here's what we like to do to try to make ourselves feel better. I mean, I was partially wrong. But if my wife wouldn't have pushed me over the edge, then I wouldn't have got so angry. Here's what you have to do in vulnerability. It's your fault. Stop blaming your story on somebody else. Against you and you alone I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment, watch this, against me is just. He's saying, God, however you see fit to handle this situation, go for it. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honestly from the womb. 
teaching me wisdom, even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. How many of you want that? You want to be at a place where you're like, God, just give me back my joy. It requires vulnerability. It requires honesty. And David says, you have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways, watch, to rebels, and they will return to you. Could it be possible that God wants you to own some of your story because he's just waiting on you to do something in your life so you can turn it around and go help somebody else that was in your position at one point? And then he says, forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves And then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a a burnt offering. Listen to this, verse 17, I'm gonna gonna end it right here. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Listen, we talked a little bit about this last week. If you want to banish shame from your life, if you want to start the healing process so that depression and anxiety does not have to be so overwhelming in your life, you have to start with the root of shame. And listen, I I hate to say it this way, but it's the only way. The only way to deal with it is to truly and humbly be broken, to feel your pain, to allow God to meet you in the midst of the waves, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the trial. See, true vulnerability owns your story. True vulnerability doesn't leave out the messy details. <laughs> you ever get to that point where you're like, all right, I'm just going to be open. I did this, 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 and this. And God's saying, no, no, go into details. Like, if you want to release yourself from the shame, you've got to go into that, how you feel. This is uh, Brene Brown again. She says it this way. Owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love, belonging, and joy. The experience that make us the most vulnerable, only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness, listen to this, we will discover the infinite power of the light. I love what she says in the beginning. Owning our story can be hard, but there's nothing worse than actually running from it. Because listen, in your running, in your, in your attempt to try to escape your pain, we solve nothing. So I wrote it this way this week. Pain can be the nails that hammer your disguise. Or it can be the mask that removes you from any chance of authenticity. So here's what, if you're dealing with pain right now, if you're dealing with shame, it can be the nails that hammer that disguise where you can finally go, okay, I can be honest. I can be real. I can tell people where I'm really at. Or you can continue to run in your pain and you continue to put on the mask and here's what happens. You sacrifice any attempt for you being authentic. Any attempt for you experiencing genuine love, 
any attempt for you experiencing genuine joy. And I don't know about you guys, but I'd rather be bleeding in the light than continue playing make-believe in the dark. I'd rather my sins and my wounds exposed so that everybody could see them, even though it sucks. Can I say that? Even though, it, I just did, even though it hurts. Vulnerability, it feels horrible, doesn't it? You feel exposed. It's like that moment, like you're getting out of shower and your two-year-old just opens the door and you're like, oh my God. You feel like, what do you feel? You need to, I need to cover something. You feel like that when you start getting vulnerable, don't you? Start getting around people and what do we do? We start grabbing for anything that we can cover ourselves with. I don't want anybody to find out who I really am. Listen, God already knows. So here's what I'm going to do. I put together a little diagram for you. If you could throw that first, uh, that first slide up, it's, it looks like roots. Here's what I'm convinced of, is that shame is like a root system. It is the seed that gets down into the soil of our life. Shame is something that kind of attaches to who we are as a person. As I said in the beginning, it says, not did you just make a bad decision, but you are bad. And because this shame starts planting in and starts digging roots into our lives, here's what happens. Go to the next slide. The branches of shame begin to be worry, anxiety, fear, and depression. And here's what I want you to understand. It all starts with this. It all starts with that. Here's Brene Brown again. Here's what she said. If you trade your authenticity, watch this, for safety, you may experience the following. Anxiety, depression, eating disorders, addiction, rage, blame, resentment, and inexplicable grief. Here's what we believe. We buy into this idea, I can't be authentic because I need to stay safe. Are you really safe? Shame says, hide because you need to stay safe. I don't know about you, but safety doesn't feel like constantly turning your head around every corner, constantly dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's and making sure that the lie that you told yesterday is the same one that you told today. And you have to keep covering up and covering up and covering up. That's not safety. So if you trade your authenticity for safety, these are the things that you start to experience. Because here's what happens. Fear begins to become a byproduct of shame. Oh my God, if people find this out, what are they going to think about me? That's how anxiety starts. Anxiety starts with you start getting in your head. And all of a sudden, it's like this motor that you can't turn off, right? And, and here's the thing. I, I've talked to quite a few people on this issue. See, I think sometimes in life, there are seasons when we deal with depression or we deal with anxiety where may, maybe medicine is okay for a season. I talked to a counselor who I, I talked to a lot. And she says, the only time that I actually give people medication for depression or anxiety is just so that I can get them healthy enough in a good headspace so they can actually listen to what I'm saying. Because sometimes the depression and the anxiety is so real, becomes so overwhelming, and you see no way out. But here's what I'm, I'm getting afraid of, if I'm just being honest. Here's what I'm afraid of. 
I'm afraid that we're starting to live in a culture that does not want to feel things anymore and we over-medicate from feeling anything. And, and here's the problem. When you over-medicate and you can't feel anything, not only do you suppress your depression and anxiety, but you suppress joy. You suppress meaning and purpose and authenticity. See, it's not selective. You can't just drown out one thing and hope the other thing will take off. Yet again, I'm not preaching bad about a medication. Like I know some people, I'm not a doctor, okay? I'm not claiming to be. But I am saying this, could you possibly take into consideration that some of the depression, some of the fear, some of the anxiety, some of the worry that you're probably experiencing is because you have some deep root systems of shame. Can I tell you why addicts continually stay stuck in their cycle? And contrary to what you believe, nobody that is addicted to anything wants to stay that way. I've, I've dealt with a brother for seven or eight years who's finally free by the grace of God. Every day. He didn't want to deal with that. He hated it. You know what kept him there? Not his addiction, his shame. Oh man, I can't tell anybody I slipped up again. What are they going to think? You know, personally, you know what I'm going to think? You know what I'm going to think? You know what I think God thinks? Every time you confess that you blew it again, all right, we're making some progress. I don't care if you've got to confess every day for the next hundred days. We're going somewhere. This is an article that I read this week, yet again. This is kind of qu- quoting Brene Brown. It says, it's no easy feat to admit our flaws. Anybody just like saying, hey, I messed up. <laughs> you just take joy in that. <laughs> Nobody. It's no easy feat to admit our flaws because that means they're real and now we have to confront them. Accepting our mistakes, our, short, our shortcomings, our choices that may have not served us well, unflattering ways others may perceive us, or stumble, imperfections that gnaw away at us is uncomfortable and in the short term, but acknowledging them can ward off long-term problems. This is what Brene Brown says. She said, shame is highly correlated with addiction, depression, eating disorders, violence, bullying, and aggression, which can all serve, watch this, as masks or so-called armor we don to keep ourselves from dealing with, simply put, the reality of ourselves. So here's the reason that you wear a mask. You wear a mask because if you take it off, now you have to answer to who you really are. And when you take it off, now you're responsible for dealing with what? This. So here's what we get stuck in. Brene Brown calls it the shame spiral. You get stuck in this spiral. I so desperately want to be free. You show up to things, you even come to church, and maybe you can hear God in the worship, and maybe God speaks to you through the message, but then you walk out of those doors and you know, deep down in your soul, nothing's changing. And you know nothing's changing because you haven't done anything. All you did was come in here and you felt something. And can I, can I lovingly tell you, the second that you get vulnerable, the second that you get honest, the second that you admit that you made a mistake, you will be met with a father who will love you regardless of what you've done. 
And listen, contrary to what our world tells us, and this is why I am growingly hating social media. I, I haven't gotten on Facebook in a few, just almost a week now just because it's like, what is this? It's like this free space for everybody to have a voice and everybody to say how terrible their life is. And the random cooking video. <laughs> so what happens? We get stuck in this spiral of numbing our pain, jumping on social media, resorting to Netflix. We don't even know how to feel anything anymore because of this. We have to check it constantly. We got a notification. Well, I can't have that red dot there for longer than five seconds. I got to get it off. You know what I, you know what I did this week? I took my boys and we went hiking. And I was like, you know what? And now that I think of it after I Instagrammed the whole thing. <laughs> um, after, we, <laughs> after we did that, I was like, you know what? I'm, this, is, this is so dumb. I'm sitting here or walking these trails or in the middle of nature and I'm concerned about getting a good picture. Why? First of all, if you use Instagram stories, it disappears in 24 hours and you don't ever see it again and neither does anybody else. Why does it matter that much? Why do we trade those kind of things for authentic things? I'll tell you why. We resort to them because we're covering up something. And it makes us feel good in the moment. Scientists have actually proven that the same dopamine that is released when you do drugs is actually released when you get a notification on your phone. Same one. It's the reason it becomes so addicting. I don't know if you know this, but Facebook actually hires people that uh, actually set all the algorithms like in Las Vegas for like casinos. How can we make this highly addictive? How can we make this so people want to keep coming back? And here's the truth, we keep coming back because the moment that we sit still, the moment we have to feel something, we're faced with the reality of our heart and now we have to deal with it. So here's what I want to do and I want to help you real quick and then I'll be done. Three practical ways that you can stop this shame spiral. And let me be honest with you, all of them are going to be hard. And all of them are going to require some pain. But I'll tell you this, if you want to grow Pain is a part of the equation. Pain is just a part of the math. It's something you can't get it out. And, and, and if you look at our culture, we're constantly searching like, how can I grow? How can I move forward without pain? <laughs> God, could you just take me a little further without like breaking me? God's saying, you want to grow. My, ne- my mechanism for growth is pain. So number one, the first thing that you got to do to stop this spiral Own your story, even the messy parts. Own it. So whatever you feel deep shame about, admit it. Talk to yourself like you're talking to a loved one. Talk to yourself like you're looking at one of your kids who did something really stupid and you're trying to tell them, don't ever do that again. Talk to yourself like that. Okay, Zach, you did this. You messed this up. You need to own it. Stop looking for ways where you can say, okay, yeah, but it, well, this wasn't fully me, and I don't know if this, I can't really own, just own it all. <laughs> okay, I messed up. I got angry. I looked at things that I wasn't supposed to. I made a decision that I should have never made. 
I made a horrible decision and it cost my wife great pain. I made a horrible decision and it cost my husband great pain. That was me. Own it. Because here's the thing. First of all, God already knows your story. So you're not telling him anything that he doesn't know. But oftentimes the only thing that he wants us to say is because here's what it does. It drops down the, bar- the barrier of pride and it brings us to humility when we can finally say, it was me. I did it. Second thing, share your story with somebody that you trust. Keyword, somebody you trust. For vulnerability to happen, it has to be with another person. Has to. This is why community is so important. This is why life groups are so important. This is why coming to a church is so important. It's why being a part of this community is so important. It's why not just showing up on a Sunday morning, but being a part of everything else that's going on out there in the community is so important. Because you have to get to a place where you can finally get comfortable with somebody. Finally say, hey, listen, I mean, I gotta share this with you. I gotta share this with you. Share your story with somebody that you trust. And, And here's the beauty of it. You're not entitled to tell your story to everybody and not everybody needs to know your story. They don't. Not everybody needs to know every intimate detail of your life. They just don't. Although we live on social media and everybody wants to, well, they did this and they said this. Who cares? Not everybody needs to know every deep, dark secret that you have, but somebody does. Not everybody needs to know, but somebody does. Because here's what that does. It releases that shame off of your life. Third thing, this is huge. Don't waste another day believing words that Jesus never said. Stop wasting your days believing words that Jesus never said about you. Jesus never called you unworthy. He never said that you weren't enough. Actually, the scripture teaches us that we are enough and that we can come to him in our shame and in our guilt and in our fear and in our anxiety. Scripture teaches us that what? Come all, heavy burdens, bring them to me. I'll give you rest. So so here's what you have to, you have to stop believing the lies that are in your head right now because Jesus never said them. And just because you feel like they're true, it doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. Just because you feel a particular way about yourself does not determine how God feels about you. Just because you feel broken and disgusting and like there's no hope, God doesn't view you like that. He doesn't. And and that's what I just, I pray that so many of us in here could just understand and we would have this deep understanding, this deep connection with how God actually views us. That he looks at us and says, man, all that stuff you're trying to fix by yourself, do you know I have just, I have a better solution? The other day, my boys have this, uh, a Wii U, and they haven't played it in probably four or five months, because <laughs> Timothy, if you've followed his chronicles on Facebook, um, this boy is just, he's on, he's on another level, okay? Um, so we got this Wii U for, I think, Christmas probably two years ago, and the boys go to play it about four or five months ago, and they go stick a disc in, and it spits it right back out. What, what in the world? And I pick the Wii up, and as, as I pick it up, I hear all this rattle. 
and I turn it over, <laughs> and all these pennies fall out of it. I was like, no way. I shake it, and I mean, there is just, I mean, it's like he went to the change drawer and was just like slot machine in this thing, you know? And uh, so I was like, man, no big deal. I'll take this Wii apart and, uh, you know, I'll get all the, the, the coins out of it. I did not know that Nintendo, made, you have to, they scam you every possible, they, they make you buy a tool. And I'm like, you know, stubborn. I'm like, I'm not buying your tool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open this thing. <laughs> and so I've got this tiny screwdriver, and I'm trying to screw these things out. And then I have, like, I got this pocket knife with this tiny little edge, and I'm trying to get these screws. It took me three hours to take this thing apart. By the time it was taken apart, I, I look at my boys in frustration. I was like, if this thing never works again, I don't even care. <laughs> I don't even care. And then as I'm taking all these pieces apart, Eli, who's like my logical one, my, he's like, so do you know how to like put that back together? And I looked at it, and I was like, no, no idea. <laughs> well, what are we going to do? I don't know. When you don't have the right tools, it frustrates you, doesn't it? Like when you've got that Phillips screwdriver and the, and the bit is just too big or too small. Ah! <laughs> and it just doesn't work, that's what we look like when we try to deal with our shame on our own. It just doesn't work. Listen, you don't have access to the tools that will set you free on your own. You just don't. It only comes from getting vulnerable, allowing the Holy Spirit to invade your life, and guess what? He gives you the access to the tools out of vulnerability, out of pain, out of owning your story, out of sharing your story with somebody else, and you get to the place where you finally stop believing the lies that were never true about you in the first place. And you finally get to this place where you say, you know what? I am worth it. I am enough. Listen, if you feel like you're unworthy, and you don't deserve healing, here's what you say to the Lord. The cross was not enough. It wasn't enough. 